Well, this morning we're going to look at John chapter 9, look at verses 1 through 7. I've entitled this this morning, straight from the text, Displaying the Works of God. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. As we continue our study in the Gospel of John, we now enter into this ninth chapter, and we see an interaction with a blind man that turns into yet another interaction, another heated interaction, in fact, with the religious leaders of that day that further shows who Jesus is, but also continues to enrage those who are against him. And it's like this continues to build and build and build. And of course, we know that it builds to the point that they get to accomplish what their desire is, which is to put Jesus to death. And we also know that that is the ultimate plan of God. And we get a glimpse of the sovereignty of God in our passage this morning as we consider that. I'm just going to have you remain seated this morning for our New Testament Scripture reading, but we will be reading in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. You follow along as I read aloud. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. John chapter 9, in verse 1, the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eye with the mud and said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Would you join me in prayer again this morning? Lord, it is by your grace and mercy that we gather this morning and by your spirit that we receive these words as inspired in the original autographs. And so we pray, Lord, that as we study this morning, this passage together, that for those of us who are in Christ, your Holy Spirit would attend to this time and continue to open our eyes and give us the meaning of this text, and uh, Lord, that we might also make application of it in our lives. I pray for those who do not know you that this morning would be the morning that they would come to realize their sin and their need of the Lord Jesus and his perfect life, his death and resurrection, and that they would come to know you, Lord, by your grace and mercy this morning. I want to pray that you would continue to teach me and get me out of the way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John Calvin once wrote, If one falls among robbers or ravenous beasts, if a sudden gust of wind at sea causes shipwreck, if one is struck down by the fall of a house or a tree, if another, when wandering through the desert paths, meets with deliverance, or after being tossed by the waves, arrives in port and makes some wondrous hair breath escape from death, All these occurrences, prosperous as well as adverse, carnal sense will attribute to fortune. But those who have learned from the mouth of Christ that all the hairs of his heads are numbered, Matthew 10.30, will look farther for the cause and hold that all events whatsoever are governed by the secret counsel of God. 
To summarize what Calvin is saying here, there is nothing that occurs that is outside of God's design for His glory and for our good. The world wants to chalk it up to random acts of the universe or fate. But Calvin says, once again, those who have learned from the mouth of Christ that all the hairs of His head are numbered will look farther for cause and hold that all events whatsoever are governed by the secret counsel of God. And this truth helps frame our study this morning when we look at our main point together, which is on the back of your worship folder there, or perhaps you're catching this via the live stream and it's been given to you by email. Not one of the outcomes of sin and the fall will be wasted by God for His glory and our good. Not one of the outcomes of sin and the fall will be wasted by God for His glory and our good. God will use all things, all suffering, all sin, for His glory and for our good. And it's hard for us to grasp that when we're in the midst of the trial. Notice our songs this morning are about the sovereignty of God. I did pick the Martin Luther song because yesterday was Reformation Day uh, proper. We, we talked about that a little bit last Sunday. But that God is our strength and His sovereignty is what, uh, what we trust. And also we know that we find ourselves sometimes in the midst of trial, of course. And so therefore the second song we sang this morning about trusting God in the midst of the suffering. And I want us to see this morning three observations from our text about this very thing, that not one of the outcomes of sin and the fall will be wasted by God for His glory and for our good. And the first uh, that we observe from our text is that sin and suffering are real, but not always connected in the way that we think. Sin and suffering are real, but not always connected in the way that we think. And I want to emphasize that this morning because I know, even as I prayed this morning in the pastoral prayer, that there are those of you who are going through trials, maybe ones that I'm aware of, ones that I'm not aware of, but, but we all suffer from one degree to, to another. And sometimes the question comes up, why? Why am I suffering? Why am I going through this trial? And sometimes we try to connect the dots as we see The disciples do here. But let's look at this again together. John chapter 9 and verse 1. As he, that is Jesus, passed by, he saw a blind man uh, from birth. Well, why does John give us this detail about uh, the the man who Jesus passes as being blind from birth? Well, first, just a a bit of context here. This is probably much later uh, chronologically than the end of chapter 8. So this occurs, it seems, in concert with chapter 10 which happens at the Feast of Dedication. Uh, and so we'll see that when we get to chapter 10, but this seems to be paired with that. So this isn't uh, the very next event in the life of Jesus. Remember, John is focused upon the miraculous signs of Jesus. And so this would be the next sign that Jesus does, or at least the next one that John points to in his affirmation of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. But, but what about this um, idea of uh, giving us this detail about this man being born blind. Well, it sets up the whole scenario concerning the theology of the day. Perhaps it was well known at the time that this occurs that the man was born blind, and John is simply letting the later audience know because this was written much later than that. And we need to know that, do we not? 
And though we get a clue of the stigma of being born blind from birth, from the question of his disciples, there is not an expression, express mention of that stigma in the text. In other words, one of the beliefs of the day was that if you had a, a physical malady of some sort, like blindness, there was an assumption that that was because of your parents' sin or because of your sin. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on this section, believes that the mention may have to do with the idea that we later see that mankind is born spiritually blind. And certainly there is an idea here that we need to grasp that there is an illustration of how we are in our spiritual state as this man is in his physical state. We are indeed born spiritually blind. One other matter to note, it is a bit refreshing for the believing reader to get a break from the constant barrage of attacks from the religious leaders and to see that his disciples are still following him, Jesus' disciples are still following him, and still hear them refer to him as rabbi or teacher. I mean, we have been in the midst of this tumult, have we not, of the religious leaders just constantly attacking Jesus. So it's, it's kind of nice to get a little bit of a break for that. It doesn't last for long, but just to see his disciples interacting with him here and um, calling him rabbi. The attacks from the religious leaders had not dissuaded the disciples from following him or inquiring of him. In other words, they see him as who he is, at least to the, the degree that they believe at this point and understand who he is. So they have not let the religious leaders attack say, maybe we need to be questioning this guy. No, they see him as who he is, or at least as much as they understand, and they still continue to inquire of him. It's so encouraging. So let's look at this question that they do ask together here in verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, I think oftentimes, and maybe you've heard this in Bible teaching over the years, we kind of fault the disciples for their question here. And I don't don't think we should do that. On the one hand, we should know that theologically, suffering is a result of the fall. It, It may be indirect, as they state, perhaps this is because of his parents' sin. Or direct, perhaps it is because of his own sin, either born into sin, or they did not know at the time that he was blind from birth. Therefore, his sin caused his blindness. But I don't think we should fault them as this, because in all reality, we understand, or at least I hope we do, those of us who sit here this morning, that sin has caused brokenness in the world. Physical maladies, uh, mental uh, maladies, um, things that uh, uh, show forth the idea that mankind has fallen into sin and that mankind is affected by this. And in either way, we will see that Jesus does not chide them for the question, but rather redirects to an answer they were not expecting. Of note for us, as we ponder these first couple of verses, is a reminder that in John's first epistle, in 1 John 3 and verse 8, uh, Jesus tells us, um, or uh, John tells us that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So we, we see this idea of Jesus working here, saying he must work while it is still light. We are reminded by the very same author, uh, John the Apostle, in his first epistle, which came much later, but that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. When he says this, he is not referring to the active work of the devil present in his day only, but also to the past work of the devil, including his lie in the Garden of Eden, which, of course, does result in suffering. Sin does result in suffering. 
we suffer because of others' sins. Sometimes the suffering that we endure, or maybe that you are currently enduring, is because someone has sinned against you. And I don't pretend to understand or know all of that, what has happened in your life in that regard, but that is sometimes where suffering comes from. Other times, suffering does come from our own sin. We, we suffer because we have sinned, and there are some results or effects of that that have uh, caused us to now suffer. But in general, we understand that suffering has come into the world because of sin and the fall of mankind. The fall results in the corruption of God's good creation. Now, I must tell you, as a, as a means of encouragement this morning, that I think the Bible teaches that we are no less in the image of God because of sin, but the fall has corrupted God's good creation. And, and each situation in which you find yourself in regard to suffering is only um, able f- uh, for you to dissect that and maybe others with you, a counselor or, 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 or someone who is walking al- alongside of you to determine where that suffering has come from. But in some cases, we look at a situation as Jesus does here and we recognize that simply the suffering is a result of the fall. And though we can kind of uh, draw our minds back and sort of see that as the umbrella under which all suffering occurs, we do understand that suffering does occur particularly in our own lives as a result of sin sometimes on the part of others or on the part of ourselves. However, we are not the ones who get to determine how that suffering is tied to a particular sin. In other words, we must understand that God is sovereign over that. Now again, I I will say that, but understand that each of you has your own situation and things that you can maybe tie to a particular sin. But notice the disciples ask here. They don't assume. They ask a question. Now, they make an assumption about whether it's his sin or his parents' sin. But again, that's sort of understandable in the thought of their day. And we may think there, there is an assumption to some degree, but they are working from what they know and what the culture around them believes. As believers, we should be grateful for the elimination of sin at the cross and the promise of being free from the presence of sin and suffering when Christ returns. So when we think about suffering this morning and the suffering that we're going through, whether that is to a small degree or to a large degree, again, each of you has your own thing that you're going through, and I pray that there are people from this local assembly that are walking through you, with you through that. The, the encouragement to the believer is that there is coming a day when those effects will be not only reversed, but glory will be the end result for us as we are glorified. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're angry at the suffering you've experienced or are experiencing. And um, in some sense, that is justifiable. And yet I want to encourage you this morning, if you are in Christ, I would encourage you to see what Jesus says here as the salve for enduring suffering while still in this world. It is truly a balm for us if we understand what Jesus says here, though we don't always feel the effects of it from day to day. So, so here, here's, not what I'm, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you should be always happy-go-lucky and understand this, and this is going to uh, necessarily take that harshness of the suffering away. But in what sense are you 
allowing the balm of the truth that we see here and the truth of the scriptures to comfort you, even though it may not take away the effects from day to day. And if you are here this morning and not in Christ, I would call call you, though you may be suffering from the sins of others, to see your own sin for what it is and the need to turn from that to Christ's life, death, and resurrection and trust in him. Let's look at Jesus' response and understand how this is a balm for us. In our second point, our second observation this morning, God works in and through suffering, and it brings him glory. God works in and through suffering, and it brings him glory. Look at verse 3 with me. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus does not criticize the disciples for what they ask. Rather, he redirects it to a different reason. He says, it was not that this man sinned. Not that this man was sinless, but that this is not the purpose for which he was born with blindness. It was not his parents who sinned. They Certainly had sinned, as all do, but their sin is not the reason for which God has purposed this in His eternal decree. It was rather that the works of God might be displayed in Him. In other words, God had in His eternal decree purposed that at this exact moment, this man's blindness would bring about the results of displaying God's work. Think about this for a moment with me, if you would. God, from eternity past, knew that mankind would sin. Purposed that none of the effects of sin would go to waste, but rather that in it we would see his marvelous works. What this passage puts on display is a microcosm of the cross. Listen to me as I explain this. The fall of Adam and Eve brings about the sinfulness of of all mankind, and the need for God to redeem for himself a particular group of people from every tribe, tongue, and ethnicity, those who would be known as the true children of Abraham by faith, as we have been studying in John 7 and 8. The marvelous work of God and the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate display of God's work for his glory and for the good of those whom he calls his own. We are all born with sin and the effects of sin. And we can look back and say this was a result of our first parents, Adam and Eve's sin, and that through God's redemptive plan, His works are shown. This is a glorious truth upon which we should ponder. In this microcosm of this, we see God speaking of the glory, or Jesus speaking of the glory of God that will be shown through what Jesus is about to do. In the same way, though we suffer with sin, the results of sin, our own sin, or the sins of others, or just flat out the fall, Jesus, who does not deserve to suffer, suffers upon the cross, the results of sin and the fall, so that those who suffer from sin can be redeemed. Immediately, The power of sin is no longer ruling over them, but the one day, dear ones, when we will 
dwell with him, and we will be free from the presence of sin. That is the glory of God displayed. And we must preach this gospel truth to ourselves daily as a reminder of who we are and who God is and what he has done in rescuing us. Or we will continue to uh, be under the effects of that suffering far more than God desires for us to be based on what he has done for us. Moving forward in our text, Jesus explains uh, this is part and parcel of his mission, to do the works of him who sent him while it is still day and before night comes. And he expresses that he is the light of the world while he, while he is still in the world. Look at it again. Verse 4, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. The works of which Jesus speaks are those which the Father has sent him to do, as he has often said. And even that, what he has delegated for his followers to do. These are the works that they are to do while he is still in the world. There's a time from the perspective of this text when night is coming and no one will be able to work. Now what does Jesus mean by this? Uh, D.A. Carson again submits that this does not mean the time of Jesus' earthly ministry ends his being the light, nor the work that must continue after his ascension and the coming of the Spirit. Rather, it means that the hour of his death, the darkness comes immediately after this work, and this will signal that the work he is currently doing, as from the Father, will be ended. What happens at the cross, we recall, the darkness comes, correct? And what does Jesus cry in that hour of darkness? It is finished. The work is finished. Everything that Jesus is doing currently is driving to the finishing of that work. And this is just one more step along the way, as John explains in his gospel, of Jesus showing who he is and what he has come to do. For the disciples, they are witnessing the most unique time in history when God in the flesh walks the earth and for all its intents and purposes in suffering all around him, which has been brought about, by the way, by sin while at the same time knowing that he will suffer for the sake of sin and sinners, who do not deserve what they will receive by God's grace and mercy. But for now, it is the time for the works of God through Christ to shine forth as an affirmation of who he is, and that his message is true. For those of us sitting here today, this relates to us depending on where we stand spiritually. For those of us who are in Christ, in no way diminishing the reality of our suffering and the reality of sin, the question this morning is this, and I do want to emphasize, I'm not seeking to diminish the reality of your suffering or the reality of sin, your own or those who have sinned against you. The question, though, is this, are we willing to submit to God's plan? Are we willing to see how God is working in and through these things to bring glory to his name? Now listen, this does not eliminate the hurt and the pain. And yet, it is a salve for us in understanding the purposes of God are not in vain. Hear me this morning. The purposes of God are not in vain. Listen to this quote from Frederick Douglass from his speech after the Dred Scott decision which was the decision to emancipate the slaves of America. Now remember, Frederick Douglass was a slave who was set free. Listen to what he says. When great transactions are involved, where the fate of millions is concerned, 
Where a long enslaved and suffering people are to be delivered, I am superstitious enough to believe that the finger of the Almighty may be seen bringing good out of evil and making the wrath of man redound to his honor, hastening the triumph of righteousness. Douglas knew the sufferings of the slave. He knew all too well the slaveholder's whip, as he says. And he is not excusing the sinfulness of sin, nor decrying the freed slaves of the pain they endured, but he is expressing the belief of the scriptures of of, uh, 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 Joseph, of, of what man intends for evil, God intends for good. By superstition, he does not mean what we typically think of in our day, but rather as the New Oxford Dictionary defines it, a widely held but unjustified belief in supernatural causation leading to certain consequences of action or event. He, he, he is saying, I, I, am, I, I believe that it, even as hard as it is for you to understand that the slave who suffered, who is now set free, must see that God has worked through this. That it is an exposure of His glory and His righteousness. For those of us who are in Christ, we are to think of life in this way. God is utterly in control. There is nothing that slips through his fingers. What man intends for evil, God intends for good. For those who are not in Christ, I implore you today, I plead with you to see the sinfulness of your own sin. It's really easy for us to see the sins of others. And I'm not, again, I'm not trying to take away from the way in which you might be suffering because of the sins of others, but my call to you this morning is to see your own sin and your need of release from that by the suffering of Christ. Jesus now turns from speaking of the works of God to actually performing those works. Our third observation, God works for the good of the sufferer. Look at verses 6 and 7. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. That's an odd phrase, isn't it? (laughs) Anointed with mud. (laughs) And said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed, and came back seeing. The respite here from the interactions with the religious leader now ends, as we will see in the coming weeks, because of what Jesus does here. At first, this is something that is only witnessed by the man and the disciples, but then it becomes more widely known. But we see Jesus not only does this on the Sabbath, a point that is brought up later in the text, but he humbles himself by the way in which he interacts with the blind man. Think about this culturally for a moment, please. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, would likely not have associated with a man such as this, because as we see later, they do believe him to be one of sin, as it were. They thought anybody who suffered with any sort of a physical malady was a sinner who did not deserve to be associated with them. Jesus also spits on the ground and makes mud with his saliva. There's many different views of what this might symbolize, but I think it's probably best to understand this as something that would have likely been uncouth in his day. For especially a rabbi to spit on the ground, and then pick up that spittle with dirt and make it into mud. He then 
reaches out with his mud-caked hands and touches the man. Puts it on his eyes. Again, a, not a sign of cleanliness, but of dishonor for a rabbi, for a teacher. He then tells the man he must go and wash in the pool of Siloam, meaning, meaning scent. Listen to what Carson says again. Granted that Jesus himself is the sent one, that the granting of sight to this blind man symbolizes the spiritual illumination without which one cannot see the true light from God. You pick up on the imagery here, don't you? Jesus is standing with a blind man in front of him, and he's talking about light being in the world, that he is the light. We must work while it is still light and before darkness comes. What, did this man, what does this man experience his entire life? But darkness. And Jesus takes the elements of the earth that mankind is made from, according to Genesis, where God forms the man out of the dust of the ground. And, and Jesus takes his spittle and he puts it into the dirt from which man is made and he puts it on the eyes of the man who has experienced nothing but darkness. And he tells him, go wash so that you might see. What does Jesus do with us? He takes our sinned, darkened hearts. He turns them from hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Moldable clay. Gives us His Spirit. Brings us new life. Takes darkness and turns to light. Interestingly, up to this point, every action has been taken by Jesus. The blind man has said nothing. I mean, perhaps he maybe even feels like what am I, some sort of an illustration here? Which, of course, he is. Now we see the man must believe. And as a response to that belief, that trust, he must obey in order to receive his sight. As we see, the man goes and does what Jesus says and comes back seeing. When he was once blind, and not just blind, but blind from birth. This man has never seen anything in his life. Now clearly the event develops beyond this, what we are studying today, but it seems like this is a good place for us to stop and consider a few things. Number one, for those who are in Christ, in no way, once again, diminishing the reality of our suffering and the reality of sin, my question to us this morning is this, are we willing to submit to God's plan? And that is without the ability to see the way in which God will be glorified through our suffering. What, is it, what does it determine? It determines that we must trust Him in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain. Whether that is from our own sin or the sins of others or something that we cannot explain. Here's what we know, dear Christian. God is sovereign. He loves you. He sent His Son to die for you. He is working all things together for His glory and for your good. And there is coming a day when all that suffering in the already not yet that we are experiencing will come to an end. I, I know that some of you may be just grasping a hold of that truth 
by a very, very thin line this morning, but I implore you to hang on. Not because you have the strength, but because, because God is the one who is holding the other end of that rope. Hang on. Trust him. And we want to come alongside of you and encourage you in that. And we need to be encouraging one another in those truths. This does not eliminate the hurt and the pain. And yet it should be a salve for us as we understand the purposes of God are not in vain. Dear Christian, hold on this morning. And though we love you as your pastors, as a church family, and we want to come alongside and encourage you, I want to let you know that as much as we love you, God loves you eternally more and has shown that through sending his eternal son to stand in your place, to suffer greater than what you're suffering right now, what you deserved and he did not. And then if you are not in Christ, my call to you is to understand that sin is real. And even as you have been affected by the sins of others, and that suffering is very real, there is one who suffered in your place for your sins, something he didn't deserve. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And my call to you this morning is to see your need of him, to turn from your sin, and to trust only in his perfect life death and resurrection as the only means to be reconciled to him, to have that sin taken care of. Not that there won't be suffering or pain or things that we must go through in this life. I'm not promising you that if you trust in Jesus today that all of that goes away. No, it remains until he comes again. But my call to you is to turn from your sin and trust in him. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I don't know all the ways in which my dear friends here this morning are suffering. Or we don't know the ways in which you might use these things for our good and for your glory. But Lord, we trust that you will. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would let us remember that it is your strength upon which we lean, not our own. It is your sovereignty upon which we trust, not our own ways of trying to figure these things out. Lord, I pray for the ones who are suffering acutely this morning, that you would be their helper and that we might even be your hands and feet to them, that we might recall these truths together. And for those, Lord, who do not know you, I pray that today would be the day, though they suffer at the hands of others, perhaps, that the Lord Jesus suffered, as it were, because of their sin, at their hands, that they would turn from their sin and trust in you. Lord, we trust you to do that work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.